come in and hang out for like a little bit and skedaddle. Audrey? Mia? Stephen? And Micah. Good. Oh, get better. I can recognize them. All right. So, uh, today is kind of an exciting day because we're moving on to uh, 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 Richard Atleo. How many watched the video or some portion of it? Yeah, he's uh, getting old. That's true. But he is really interesting, and he tells the stories, some of the same stories that are in the book in that video, so it's kind of worth listening to if you haven't already, because it's told differently, which is one of the things about storytelling. It's not always the same. It's not like reading a book. It's responsive to the situation, and of course, this last telling of it is 2021, uh, during pandemic, and so on, so it's an interesting... You, it's interesting to think about what the different valences are and so forth when you compare it to stuff that's in the book. Anyway, um, uh, housekeeping before we get started. Uh, grading's done. Yay! Ah, ah. Boy, <laughs> it makes me wonder why I ever assigned anything. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, Wednesday's land acknowledgments, Audrey. Uh, Wednesday's presentation is Joe. Riveting. Um, I mentioned the video. Today's land acknowledgement. I didn't write down who's doing it. Who's doing it? Oh, right. That is Bill. Um, let's see. Let's do the land acknowledgement. And then I want to give a couple of crazy observations. Now that I've read all of them, I have a, a view or two that I'd like to share. So maybe we'll do that next. So, Ron. Midwest in a city called Eden Prairie, Minnesota. Uh, it's about 10 or 15 minutes outside of Minneapolis, if you know where that is. Um, so Eden Prairie is located on Dakota lands. Dakota means friend or ally, and they named the area Minnesota Makoche, which means land of sky-tinted waters, and that was the origin of the state's name, Minnesota. Um, so... In July of 1851, the Treaty of Traverse des Sioux was signed between the Sisseton and Wapaton Band of the Dakota and the United States, and this resulted in the Dakota selling the southeastern region of Minnesota to the U.S. because they were fearful that if they didn't sell to them, the U.S. would just take it. And the Dakota were in a desperate situation due to overhunting of bison in the area, and they needed resources in order to take care of their communities. And the U.S. was eager to take the land because they wanted it for farming. And then a couple of months later in August, a similar treaty of the, a similar treaty was signed called the Treaty of Mendota. At first, the Dakota resisted because of um, past treaties that they did not receive compensation for that they were promised, and then, so the U.S. promised that they would get the compensation for past treaties, as well as the Treaty of Mendota. And so, that treaty was signed by the Midewapton and Wapakute bands, and then over 100,000 colonizers moved to Minnesota while they were forced onto reservations. And then they were never paid anything 
of like Syracuse. Um, so Minnesota is the land of 10,000 lakes and the Dakota talk about the origin of their people and they tell stories about where the Mississippi and Minnesota rivers meet called the Dote and then Bidawakan or Spirit Lake. And this, the lakes and all the rivers and stuff provided a lot of fishing. And then in more recent years, one of the most popular lakes in Minneapolis, formerly called Lake Calhoun, was changed back to the name Bidamakaska or White Earth Lake in 2018. And this initiative was fought for by many people in the area including native leaders because the lake was previously named after John Calhoun, who was the seventh vice president of the US who owned slaves at the South and defended slavery. And then another more progressive initiative is that the University of Minnesota has recently introduced specific dorms dedicated to Dakota and Ojibwe languages. And so the students in these dorms, um, I think, they're all indigenous, but they wanted to promote uh, fluency of the languages because it's been lost over time. And then they wanted to reconnect the students with their communities and their cultures. So that's like the better part. Yeah. Great, thank you. I used to live in St. Paul and went to the University of Minnesota, so. Yeah, so I know what you're talking about. Um, you didn't mention the Great Sioux War, which happened in the 1860s, early 1860s, 1863, which was a response to the fact that no payments were forthcoming from the US government. Of course, the Civil War had started. There was this, this uh, war that occurred. Um, the Dakota, Lakota attacked the various settlements, right, all across the middle part of Minnesota. And at the end of it, uh, some 300 and some um, tribal uh, warriors, the people who were doing the attacking, got uh, captured by the US government. And they were all sentenced to death. And then Abraham Lincoln uh, commuted the sentence on all but 53. Someone will probably correct that number. I think it was, or maybe 35, it's the other way around. Um, who were then, uh, actually executed in the town of Mankato, which is actually where my wife is from, um, uh, the day before Christmas in 1864, I think. Um, the largest uh, mass execution in U.S. history, and it is uh, acknowledged every year in Minnesota by the tribes, and this year there was a, um, a ride from Pine Ridge to Mankato uh, when it was like seven below zero every day, um, folks from Pine Ridge rode to Mankato to honor those who were executed there. So, um, so Minnesota has both done good things and also some pretty terrible things, yeah. Okay, anyway, uh, let's talk about Gracie's. Uh, I like the Gracie's, we're good. There. Um, some folks were pretty careful about doing citations, that is saying where they got stuff in the Praises. Some people less so. I want to encourage you to be more so. Um, simply noting a page number, if you're writing about a text that we all have, you don't need to do a fancy citation. But just, you know, when you make a claim, do a little cite 
right next to it, and then and then I can I can track that down because some of your insights are actually quite good. And then I had I was curious, so I went back, and then I had to spend time digging through pages and figuring out what you're referring to. So it's much help more helpful to me if you if you like tag it with a, a page number. Um, and some of you took different approaches, which is cool. Some sort of straight summary, some had a sort of theme and summary. Either of those sorts of approaches work, and they were interesting. Um, however, in all of this, there was a question you didn't answer, but you all sort of raised it in the background. So I want to just tell you what this question is. It was bugging me as I was reading these. And by the time I got done, I said, I got to bring this up in class because it's bugging me. Um, so, so the issue is, because Deloria sort of begs the question, right? What's the relationship between Western science and indigenous science? Let's imagine that both of them come up with a set of, you know, claims about the world, beliefs of the world or whatever, right? The, you know, some, something they say. In fact, you might just pick an easy one, right? So Deloria says, uh, the universe is alive. Many of you actually mentioned this one, right? Sounds good. My question is, let's just suppose it's true. What is it true about? In what way is it true about that thing? Those are two questions. What is it true about, and in what way is it true? I think there are different options, and I would like you to tell me which is the right one, because it always is puzzling me, and then it sort of came up a lot in your crises. One way it could be is it could be that this is a claim about the universe we all recognize, and it's true. Just in the same way, I can count the number of desk chairs in this room, and I can say what those are, and then you can tell me that's true or that's not true. Right? I don't know how many are. You know, 25 or something. Whatever it is. Say 25 rooms in the, uh, chairs in the room, it's true. Right? Uh, if you take one out, it's no longer true. So the universe is alive is true in the sense that it is true about the universe, right? And, and so what's the universe? It's alive. Now, some of you spun this in a slightly different way and said, the universe is alive is an interpretation of the universe. Now, I'll try to explain the difference. So I'm looking at a thing, and you're looking at a thing, and I say, that thing is blue, and you say, that thing is green. This actually happens all the time with my wife. <laughs> because for some reason, I can't get blue right. Um, and so, so this comes up, right? And so there's a question. So is it really blue, or is it really green? Well, a, a way to settle the potential conflict in the family is to say, well, that's how you interpret that color. And I say it's the other color. In other words, it's not true in the same way the number of chairs in the room is true. It's true in the sense that my claim about the world um, is a good interpretation. There can be another one. In fact, there is one, right? Uh, Western science has one. They say it is not the case that the universe is alive. Right? Indigenous science, Western science, um, we might want to be very pluralist and say they're both true. In which case, it might be right to say they're just interpretations of the same, we all see the universe, and they're interpretations. So they're, in the, they're true in the way an interpretation is. There is a third choice. Let me give you the third choice, and then, then we'll go for it. Um, so the third choice is they could both be true, but not about the same thing, right? So here's my universe that's alive, and here's my universe that's not. Um, they're two different universes. We've heard of this sort of thing before, right? The 
Uh, not the multiverse of madness, but you could use that one if you like. But there are scientific theories, right, quantum theories, that say there are a bunch of parallel universes where different things are true, right? They, they're all legitimate universes, and you can say in this one, this is true, and you can say in this other one, there are logics that talk about possible worlds in the same sort of way. So it could be that what we're supposed to understand in these two claims is that there are actually two different universes, indigenous world, western world, different now that raises the question of how do they get along, right? So when I'm walking in the indigenous world, do I have anything to do with the other world, right? Are there points of overlap, and if they do, what's, what do they look like, and which thing is true there, and so on, right? Okay, so three options. These are supposed to be true just like saying there are a number of chairs in the room is true, straightforward, talking about an object. They're true in the sense that they're good interpretation, Right? That is, multiple interpretations can be true about the same thing, or they're, they're true, but this is sort of version of the first one, right? They're true, but they're true about their own universes, right? Okay, so, which is it? Please tell me, and then we can move on. Rachel? The universe Wait. is alive because in the Prestige we're supposed to be stating what the word is stating. Oh, yeah. So, like, yeah, so no. I'm not holding any of you actually okay. fully responsible, but you, you repeated back to me what Deloria said as though it made sense. And I believe that it makes sense, so I wanted to figure out what you think about it. That makes sense to me, but... Um, <laughs> but uh, Ow! <laughs> the, the worldview that I come from. Yes. But anyways, your, your comment about whether the sky is blue or whatever, yeah. inching up, blue... The sky blue and the grass blue is the same color. It's both blue. They just say sky blue and grass blue. So green and blue are the same color. So there's an answer to your I'm going to actually use that next time because <laughs> there is a particular moment where I invariably said, oh, it's the green one. And she'll say, no, it's the, you don't know what you're talking about. It's blue. So, so the word is quichi. Quichi. Yeah. Okay, thank you. This will settle all marital matters. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Probably not. Is it possible that there's a fourth option of Schrodinger's universe where it's both dead and alive at the same time? So it's uh, it's what it is until you look. Yeah, so if I'm not paying attention or trying to figure it out, mm -hmm. then it's both. Yes, I mean, that, that's right. That is another possibility, that it's both are true about that particular universe, right? the Schrodinger cat version. So I like that. That's enough. It does not answer my question. Yeah. It adds another option. <laughs> okay. No? Um, I think Thomas Norton Smith, he's got a book called The Dance of Person and Place uh -huh. where he draws on Nelson Goodman's yes. um, philosophy of like world making. So like the idea there is that like worlds aren't given. They're not like something that sort of mm -hmm. pre-exists our sort of conceptual activity but um, but they're sort of constructed they're made mm -hmm. and so what's interesting about that approach is that like um, different cultures different languages mm -hmm. will have different ways of sort of organizing and constructing and creating worlds mm -hmm. so it's not the same world that's being interpreted in different ways. It's literally different world-making processes. Right. So it's a way of interpreting it in terms of different, say, different worlds. <laughs> one where it's true and one where it's not, or one where one is true and one where the other is true. Although the Nelson Goodman approach gives you a kind of how does it get constructed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Exactly. So you're voting for two different universes. I like it. Joe? Um, it seems as if a lot of the people that you've read try to argue or claim to describe the, the universe as a, a natural morality. Morality is natural to it. Mm -hmm. um, so the universe is alive is not just a descriptive claim, but it's a, it's a value one about how we, as a living, we are, owe it our respect. Mm -hmm. Our generosity, just as it respects us and is generous towards us. Mm -hmm. So, if we make it into this like world building claim, then we could say that, oh, well, indigenous people, for their world, they think the universe is alive. But for others, though, it's not alive in our world. But then you would say the universe is both demanding respect and not demanding respect. I don't think that that's something that uh, Deloria or any of the other indigenous people would be would be willing to claim because they want the universe to have. Like the, there would be there would be no impetus to end the ecological catastrophe because who cares? It's not alive, you know, for some people. Right. So he must be, I think at the end of the day they would have to claim that it's more than just our worldview, but it is in fact alive yeah. in a larger sense. And so not two universes, just one, about which one claim is correct and the other is not correct. Yeah, yeah I think like So this sounds a little bit like um, I have an interpretation in which certain things hold, and you have another interpretation where they don't, right? So, so the God is dead, God is not dead, is that kind of claim. It's not like I'm in a universe where God is alive, I'm in this universe and you're in this universe, but for me, in effect, God is alive and for you, God is dead or something like that, right? So kind of the first option. Um, oh, sorry, Rukili. Sorry, Rachel, one, one more, and then, then we'll go to second round. Uh, I was going to say, um, put my vote in for um, same as the one with Joe's. Just um, like it's, it's actually true in like how many pairs are there and like different ways. Mm -hmm. So, stretch. You, yeah, there's an object, it's the world, so it seems and there's like something. That, um, yeah. The Western science isn't, isn't looking at things holistically enough, so it's missing that. Ah. That's why it's like it's too zoomed in. So, so it's. It's like okay. it's on its way to getting there, like with physics right. and whatnot. Like well, they're coming to the truth of the universe they're getting being there. alive. Yeah, yeah. right. That's the way I so, so one world. Uh, some claims are true. Some claims are not. Yeah, what's your kind of forgive them because they're, they're coming like slow. Yeah, got it. Okay. Great. Well, I was going to go off on similar to that. That using Deloria's claim uh -huh. that eventually Western science will get to the same answer is indigenous mm -hmm. science that they just haven't figured it out yet. Right, right, which is, again, I mean, I think there was a time, like when Norton Smith wrote his book, there was a really strong commitment to kind of a pluralistic approach where there are multiple worlds, and the idea was to come up with a way of thinking about it so you could have multiple worlds, right, that were sort of equal but different. Um, but but Deloria is not going to buy that. Right, Delorie wants a picture of the world where, where um, 
there, there's a kind of convergence, but it's not a convergence where a contradiction turns out to be it's true. It's a convergence where a description like the universe is, yes, the universe is alive, and you guys will get it eventually. It makes sense if you think about it, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> well, if I think about it, I know it's true. <laughs> Part of my problem is that lack of thought. <laughs> well, I think the Luria does say that there could be multiple realities. He does. And that's based on relationality, so each person, each thing has a reality. But the overarching truth is that the world's alive. Yes, right. <laughs> right, and, and I think that that's, that's an interesting observation worth definitely keeping in mind because there's a dimension of which is interpretive, right? And so there can be different shades of interpretation, but that claim, the, the overarching ontological claims, you know, they're, they're either true or false, and in the case of what Deloria says, he thinks that they're just true. Uh, I was just going to add to the kind of the one world mm -hmm. uh, different interpretations uh, argument that you could argue that um, the kind of approaches that re that sort of um, are prioritizing pluralism and sort of emphasizing different worlds are also kind of ignoring the agency of like of the non-human sort of like the world right. itself, right? right. That, that the world itself, if the world itself is an agent and can express itself in relation to right. our sort of world-making processes, then um, that has to be, the, the reality of that has to be included in our perspective. Yeah, we're seeing Western science go that way anyway, with Baradian analysis. That's right. The idea that the yeah. universe is reacting to us in a way that we can only deem agential. Right. right. Just have a question, though, Western science is, if pathogens can have agency, but the universe can't have agency, like, it just doesn't make sense. So, so of course, Western science, with some exceptions, would say about pathogens that they don't have agency, properly speaking, though we talk about it that way, because talking about it that way is useful. But there, are, uh, it's really interesting to read about this, right, because, because there are plenty of scientists who admit that talking about COVID as though it has a purpose um, is common and useful in terms of trying to understand like transmission and so on, but it doesn't really have any of that, right? That's just our talk about it. And that's a case then where you got the object and you got an interpretation, the interpretation works, but it's not strictly speaking true about the thing. Um, and it's, it's actually interesting to see how people have wrestled with that with the COVID because it becomes very hard to talk about COVID unless you say, like, you know, it wants to do these things or it modifies itself in certain ways. And, of course, those who actually are, are, are uh, uh, epidemiologists say, but, but it doesn't really want anything. Right? Uh, really? Um, it seems like with Western science, this is like one example of the separation that, um, like, in the... Yes, right, yes, good. I'm glad you're making that transition for me. Yeah, between school and society, like, it's like how we talk about things doesn't always correspond to, like, the medical, metaphysical beliefs right. we have about the world. Right. Like, in, in, in the West. And Atleo is really interested in proposing a, a true account of the world. His metaphysics is not just a, and here's, here's what we say. He actually is interested in saying, and this is this is the account, and Western science is you know circling around it. It's not quite there yet, but it's coming in. And when, in fact, this question was asked of him about his work when he was here in class, then he was like, 
Yeah, I'm just telling you how the world is. And you can, you can make of that what you please. Eventually you'll get it, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. I just want to say, like, um, I think that the, these separations that you point out is probably the reason that we're able to make like such critical claims. Mm -hmm. Because, like, not to like go back to the word holistic, but yeah, how we talk about stuff does not match up to <laughs> what we actually right. 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 So, so th this discussion actually turns out to be a really important one to keep in mind because there's a real tendency, and you can see this in the literature. Of, of trying to be understanding about the, the point of intersection between Western and indigenous thinking, and our people are inclined to say that these are two accounts of the same thing. And then sometimes a little, maybe a little prejudice to the one foot comes along, and it's sort of like, and eventually, you know, we'll be able to understand this in proper psychological terms or something like that, right? Um, and it affects then what you do with the view, right? Because it's, if it's just talk, that's, that's a thing. Um, some have described it as a kind of as-if philosophy, like you treat uh, rivers and trees as if they're agents or alive, right? But that, of course, is not the same thing as their being alive, right? Say, I treat you as if you deserve respect does not mean you deserve it, right? It means I'm just going to grant it to you. Right, though you don't have it. And that's the problem in some of these accounts. They end up accounting, taking indigenous thinking and turning it into a, a kind of maybe respectful as if, right? But that's not usually how it's intended. And at Leo, it's definitely not how it's intended. Um, okay, so let's, can we move to at Leo? Okay, because his, his introduction talks about this stuff. Um, it, that's the introduction, this one, in Sawa, the green one. Um, he wrote two books, as you can tell. The green one came first. And although it's the second one that people like talk about a lot, which is fine, um, this one has the stories in it. So he keeps referring to the stories in the second one without actually having the stories in front because he actually wrote them as like one. And then the publisher wanted to do it as two, and so now you can get the other one, that one, more easily. But you need to have the stories. So uh, in the beginning of this, he sets his problem, which is Western science versus indigenous science, right? Is there anything about that? Yes? This is the one that was at the death story battle. Yes, that's the one. Okay. Yes, because I'm just using the first two chapters of this one. Oh, so okay. I, that, that one's on our read. It's okay, I have the, that copy. I just yes. didn't know we were yeah, it's, on, it's online. It's, um, we, the university has a copy, and you can just... You know, you can access it, but um, yes. And, and don't worry, because we're going to come right back to this, this green one, because we have to understand the stories. So we're going to start there, actually. But before we do, are there any things we need to say about the intro? Because he does actually talk about Western philosophy and stuff here, so some of you might want to say something about that. I don't know. I wanted to make sure the opportunity was there, right? Philosophers. Hey, Regalia. <laughs> Because I realized in my own comments, even I was over relying on the word holistic. Like he brings up the point that the way that Western um, thinkers say that word isn't the same as how maybe he means, or how a lot of like indigenous people that are like also say that word mm -hmm. mean for it to be. Yes. What page is this? Um. So it's like on the very first page. Of the oh. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah, so at the end of the second Oh, yes, the everything is one thing, right. It means yeah. more than the empirically based meaning attached to the word holism. 
Right, and you see that almost immediately because when he says everything is one, he also says everything is many. Right, both both these come together, but it's still in in Chalmers, It's still under the the aspect of Salwak. It's still everything is one. Um, think about uh, um, the, the the Deloria sort of starting point is all things are related, right? Everything's uh, every, every all my relations. Everything is related. Does that mean the same thing as as everything is one? No. Uh, other opinions? Yes. Anyone say yes? It seems to come to say the same point when you. Yeah, I I noted that I mean like that it's related to the same thing. Like it seems like it is. Yeah. Why would you say it's not? It doesn't come to the same thing. And that's legit too, because I'm I'm not. Well, if I just heard those two statements, yeah. they don't sound the same. Thing. They don't. Just like the same way, like I can I can use the word holistic mm -hmm. to describe something. Right. And like right. what I mean by that can be <laughs> much more involved or not as involved. Like what commitments I'm making. I mean I would just tentatively say the way to think about this is there's an emphasis in each statement, right? The everything is one emphasizes the the you know the, the whole and all of its parts connected inside it or something. And everything you know everything is related is like a picture of inside the whole, the status of the things inside the whole. They're all, they're all related. So it's sort of the same, because both of them come down to one. There's not, there's not more than one whole. Deloria's clear about that, right? But there's an emphasis on the whole and, you know, sort of the consequences, or its parts, but they all come down to being together, I think. But when I first read this, I actually made the note, like, what? Does, is this the same, or is this different? And then I didn't actually write down the answer, so I'm not sure what it is. Um, what else in this introduction struck you? Related um, to the difference in the sort of conception, the way that holism is used, uh, I think he immediately goes in to talk about the connection between the metaphysical and the physical, and actually even, like, explicitly states that like the metaphysical or spiritual is like has priority or primacy over the physical. Right, and um, this is, I mean, this shows up in DeLorean, of course, but um, Leo's view of the world has to give you the starting point of uh, the spiritual or the physical or the physical or the non-physical, right? Come with the place. And, and he compares it with Plato, right? And the spiritual is the sort of the superior thing in the sense that it provides the, the order for the other thing, right? So there's a kind of, you know, um, uh, relation where the, the spiritual stuff gets mirrored in the physical world, but it's the spiritual stuff that's, be, that's doing the work, in effect. Now, um, for those of you who, you know, like the classical interpretation of Plato, I know there are others, the theory of form says that there are these sort of abstract, uh, removed from the world um, models for everything that the present world tries to be like. But of course, since the present world is not sort of removed and universal, they're copies, right? Less than perfect copies. So um, when you think, you know, examples like, you know, uh, the perfect table. There's a form of table, and the tables that we build, they're you know copies, adequate sometimes. Um, more importantly, the form of the good. The good is is sort of a 
abstract universal, and then you do things, and they're kind of good, because they kind of copy, right? Now, admittedly, there are, more, <laughs> there are other translations of Plato, but I think this is the one that, uh, that Atleo's got in mind. There are others that give a lot more nuance to the notion of forms and the difference between universals and particulars and so on, and I'm sure some of you could correct me on this even now, especially those of you who are reading it in Greek, but I'm going to step back from that and just say the idea is there's a kind of pattern, right? And then there's the stuff in the world. And they're not the same exactly, but the one is dependent on the other. Now, this is a really interesting starting point, because if you for are like many people, you'll just say, well, the spiritual thing, that's nice. Rumik, glad you brought that up. It's a good idea to have that there. Uh, don't buy it, don't believe it, and someday you'll realize that it doesn't really exist. But for now, the spiritual's cool, right? Um, you can't understand what he's up to if you turn this into a thing that he just put in like a kind of rider because it's sort of entertaining or something. This is the structure, right, for Atleo. And so you have to grant this going in. Don't hold it, don't try to say, well, what it really is is what we have in our brains for some Leo will, will not let you do that. And so if you want to give him the full, you know, the full account, just set that aside. After we're done, you can say, and I don't buy this spiritual thing. But for reading out Leo, you have to grant it. You just have to say, this makes sense. This is how it is. I don't know how these two sides get together. He's got things to say about that. Let's see what he says. Does this make sense? That's a reading strategy. I teach that, I've taught this before, and there's always a little resistance on that point. <laughs> like, yeah, but isn't it really this? Nope, not for Atleo. This is really just the, this is what it is. Okay, anything else in that intro that we need to note before we go on to the cool stuff? Okay, all right, the cool stuff. So um, what I want to do is I want to read the story of Son of Raven. I want us all to participate in that reading of the story. And then I want to talk about that story. Now, I know you've all, or most of you, have read what Atleo says about it. That's cool. You've watched the video. You've heard what he says about it. But set that aside a little bit while we read the story. And then just take in the story as you hear it. I want to talk about what the story has to say. And try to get at this notion that Atleo brings to the table, which is story as theory. Right? He thinks this story, Son of Raven, basically has a, a picture of the universe in it. And we've been looking at pieces of it. And it has the further advantage of, because it's a story, it brings more to the table than a bunch of propositions that describe the universe. And so I want to spend a little time sort of trying that on. Um, we may not be good at it, because we don't usually think theory this way. But it's, it's useful to just sort of start by trying, trying to get our heads around the idea of story as theory. So uh, let's read it. Um, it starts, for those of you following along at home, on page uh, six. Six. six, exactly. And um, I'll read the first paragraph, and then we'll just hand it around. And then, uh, you know, the next person wants to read, read the next paragraph, and so on, until we're done. Uh, some of the names are a little challenging. You know, cool. Don't worry about it. Do your best you can. No one will say anything. Okay. 
This is how Son of Raven captured the day. Multiple tellings of this story, this is just one of them, right? But it's told here in the context of, yes, it's going to be written. Yes, it follows an introduction on the relationship between Western science and indigenous science. And it's here to introduce some basic concepts of um, uh, neutral new uh, philosophy, right? So, so it comes into context. All right. They had no light in the beginning. Son of Raven suggested that they try to capture the day. Across the waters, a chief owned the light of day, which he kept carefully guarded in a box. The people who lived in darkness grew tired of this and wondered what to do. Anyone? Uh, how can we do that? He was asked. We will. Uh, yep, go carry on. We <laughs> will entertain the chief with a dance. Son of deer, who can not only run fast but also leap far, will dance. If we are to capture the day, deer must dance as one who is inspired, as one who captivates an audience. And then what will happen? They asked Son of Raven. Deer will have soft, dry cedar bark by the night. And no one seems to expect it. We will have close to the day box and dip this bark into the fire. Yeah, it's such a good idea, they said. In order for some of deer to dance for the chief who owned the day, protocol had to be observed. Petitions, preparations, prayers, pledging families, and a great deal of self-disciplining practice would take place before some of deer could appear before the chief. These protocols do not appear in the story because every missionary race of the Chilton would have been well versed in the necessity of observing appropriate diplomatic processes. In fact, an important underlying assumption about the ritual experience is that the whole of life and existence is characterized by relationships with our first friends. All was now prepared. Every ex exacting detail of ritual, ceremony, and practice had been observed. Son of Deer was dressed in his finest dancing costume, and the soft, dry cedar bark was now carefully tied behind him. When they reached the other side, the dancing began. The chief and his people watched. At first, there was little evident interest in the dancing. This is usual. Highly accomplished people are not easily impressed. But gradually, Son of Deer's dancing began to take hold of his audience. He danced with inspiration, fueled by the desire to fulfill a great need. He danced tirelessly, effortlessly, drawing his strength from all those who lived in darkness. Now he danced by the day box. Without missing a beat, he dipped the dry cedar bark into the day box. Instantly, it caught fire, and Son of Deer sprang for the door. But the chief and his people were quicker. Before Son of Deer could leap out of breach, the fire was snuffed out. Now the chief and his people knew that Son of Raven wanted the daylight. From now on, the box would be more closely guarded. The beginning of the legend was transformed into Sakai, except Son of Raven, could be satisfied with nothing less than taking the form of a giant king salmon. When the people of the day saw the huge king salmon, they asked, is it not Son of Raven? 
Yes, it must be he who wishes to take the day from us. When Wren subsequently advised a transformation into salmon bay shoes that were also then in season, Son of Raven again foiled the plan with eager fistful one-upmanship by transforming into a giant salmon bay shoe. Um, However, Wren is not the only thief who always keeps frightening the downstairs evening. Rather than rejecting or chastising Son of Raven for his blunders, Wren devised a plan that would take advantage of Son of Raven's great desire to do great deeds. This new plan required Son of Raven to transform into a tiny leaf that would float in the chief's well. When the chief's daughter came to drink, Son of Raven could maneuver himself in such a way that he would be made to fall. So it happened that Son of Raven became a tiny leaf floating in the chief's well. When the chief's daughter came to her drink, she dipped her cup into the well. As she lifted her cup to drink, she drew the tiny leaf away from her father's head, leaving a chief. One tiny leaf drifted toward her mouth. Before she could stop, she had swallowed it. Oh no, don't be a leaf, she thought. But not long after this, the daughter became pregnant. She wondered how it could have happened, for she had no husband. In due time, she bore a son. It was a crybaby. It cried so much that the mother and her relatives were all suspicious. Is it not Son of Raven? The old people asked. It seems to cry impatiently one of us. But what if they were mistaken? What if the baby really belonged to the chief's daughter? They could not be sure, so the baby was accepted. As the baby grew, it continued to cry and whine a lot. When the baby was old enough, he loved to play in the canoes. All day he would play in those canoes. He also knew about the paddle of great power owned by his mother. With one stroke, the paddle could propel any canoe a great distance. The boy began to whine for this paddle. He whined and whined. Finally, his mother relented. Still, the mother was careful. The boy could play with the paddle, but the canoe must remain tied to the shore. Again, the boy whined and wheedled until he was allowed to paddle freely about. The boy was carefully watched, but nothing unusual happened. Gradually, the family began to trust him. Wasn't he just a boy who liked to play like other boys? One day, the boy began to play with the box that sat in his usual room by himself. He wanted the day box to play with him, but he wanted to play. The chief would not hear this. No. Next morning, the boy began to play with the day box again. 
was being watched, but not so closely anymore. Then, all of a sudden, the boy gave a mighty thrust of his mother's paddle. Swiftly, his canoe raced over the water toward the other shore. The chief and his people panicked. They scrambled for their canoes, one by one, as the canoes relaxed into the deep, they sank. The mice had done a good job. As the boy neared the other shore, he began to uncover the day box very uh, slowly. Now, for the first time, the people of darkness began to experience daylight. They looked and saw that it was the son of Raven who was coming to bring them the light. It grew brighter and brighter until the fullness of day was upon them. Today, when the tide is out, you may notice that the son of Raven is the first to enjoy any food that is found at water's edge. That is, that is his right and privilege recognized by all new children. Okay, there's the story. Anyone entertained? It should be, the son of Raven. So it's a trickster story, right? Son of Raven kind of ends up doing good things and bad things, really full of himself, but sometimes he learns a lesson and so forth. So that's all sort of expected going into the Son of Raven story. But let's spend a minute talking about what is, well, to follow that Leo, this, if the story is theory, what's the theory that's going on here? What's a good place to start? Suggestions? So, so there, at minimum, we know that thanks to the, thanks to the narrative, right? Uh, egotism is not going to get the result desired, right? It fails, it fails more on them. The longer version of the story, yeah. But it does give him the credit over Rin, who seems to be the one who actually did everything. Yes. So let's let's uh, let's wonder about that for a moment. So we have some characters, right? That's Son of Raven. We got Rin. And to some, and who else do we have? Semi here. Sorry? The mice. Uh, what was that? The mice. The mice. You know, I always forget the darn mice. Okay, what else? Some of fear. Some of fear. The chief and the people who live on the other chief, side of the river. Yes. And the, uh, the people. The mother and the grandmother. Day, right? Grandmother. Potter of the chief. Mother. What was the other one there? Mother is also like the daughter of the chief. Yes, right. Uh, mother, daughter, chief. That matter. Anything else? So, so, we, so the, the the role of the boy played by by Son of Raven is just one of Son of Raven's characters, right? Because he, he also does sockeye salmon and also very large salmon berries, apparently. Shoot. Um, like shoots. Huh? Shoots. Like I'm sorry. Shoots. Sorry. Uh, what about the day box? So that also might matter. Like canoes. Mm -hmm. Canoes. What else? What? Paddle? Paddle? 
have more power. Yep. Cedar. What else? I think the water. Water. Yeah, that seems important. Anything else? Off the top of your head? Okay. That's pretty comprehensive. Probably some stuff missed here. No one mentioned the sockeye, or for that matter, the salmonary shoots, right? Because there's something. Or the leaf. Or the leaf. The leaf is another character. Son of Raven. Okay, are we to understand these as representing various things? I don't know, what do you think? We have a pretty good idea what Son of Raven is, right? If nothing else, he's the trickster. Uh, what about this chief? What's the chief represent, if anything? Uh, well, he seems to say that he's the creator. Right. Um, and in fact, the de the his his uh, mutual dude's name is uh, owner, right? Owner of all. Owner of all. And that actually is an important thing to note because it represents something about neutral news society that's different, actually, from other indigenous societies in the, in the Northwest, right? Some have very structured um, societies where there is a one in charge, and there are others not structured that way. Some have a, a, a slave class as part of the community. Others do not, right? So there are structural differences. This is a society in which the chief is viewed as the, the, the owner, right? The one who is both responsible for and responsible to, right? All the stuff that goes on, but it's that kind of structure. And the choice of ownership strikes some, would look weird in other cultural locations, right? Because there aren't owners in other cultural locations, apparently, here. So, yes, so there's the chief, who's the owner of all. Um, uh, daughter of chief? Daughter of chief. She's kind of instrumental in this, though, right? She's part of the story in an important way. What's her role? She's like the place where the subject of the sacred stone comes to be born and so there's a way in which she mediates between the two places, for sure, right? Because Son of Raven's not from there, right? He's from the people with no light. And thanks to his deceptions and so on, the chief's daughter becomes the vessel, in a sense, for his scheme, but also plays, I mean, she's the chief's daughter and so on. So she has this sort of interesting social role plus a mediating role between the sides, I guess. She really exists as a tool in the story. She doesn't. She's kind of uh, submitted to like not actually. She doesn't really say anything. The grandmother was the one who was like, "You have to give the kid the box." And the she does say something when she she has the leaf. Oh yeah. She uh she's she's like well it's only leaf. Yeah, but the, the original idea was to kidnap the daughter. Like just right, like to trade, presumably to trade the daughter for, yeah. for some life, right? So there are means to the end. Right. Story. What about other characters? Anybody else leap out at you? The grandmother. The grandmother, right? 
This is, I mean, if it were a grandfather, I would definitely resonate with this because I have this grandson who sometimes is very determined to get things. And this idea of just saying it over and over again, that is a, that is a standard approach. And as the grand, I have said, hey, give this kid a break, will ya? So I, I, I resonate with that character. But yes, right. What were you thinking? I was just thinking of myself. What were you thinking? <laughs> That's interesting that that line of stuff, right? So here's this kid who's crying way too much to be one of us, right? Uh, but, you know, what, what else could we be wrong, right? So there's a kind of fallibilism that's going on and a kind of, well, we're not going to kick the kid out, you know, because we we're not really sure. Just because we want to, you know, the, the obnoxious kids that we accidentally have somewhere or whatever, right? So there's a way in which... Um, that there's a there's a trajectory here, and the grandmother, in a sense, sort of caps it off, right? Says, "Look, now we kind of trust him. Plus, I'm annoying, <laughs> which is a, a legitimate position to take." What else do you see here? And Leo makes that point, right? He says, the thing to notice here is that the water plays this key separating role. Otherwise, the two communities would be side by side, and the whole acquisition of light would look very different, right? But because of the water in between, which is really only crossed, right, by canoes, um, the canoes perform this really important function, getting between the communities, right? Well, it's under trust like canoes are transforming into animals which doesn't seem to be an ability that the chief and his people Which canoes have. are transforming into canoes? Or no, I mean like the Son of Raven and oh, the yes. other ones transforming into like salmon and things like yes. that. So that doesn't seem to be an ability that the chief and his people have since they don't chase him by transforming into fish themselves. Oh, interesting. Huh. So what didn't happen here? I hadn't thought of that. I'm not sure what to make of it, but good. Yes? Um, I'm not sure how What, so why is the boy not being watched so much? So there's the proving side. So like he hasn't done anything bad. But what else? What else is that a sign of? Trustworthiness or becoming part of the community, right? Too, right? So so it's not just trustworthy, but an outsider who we're just going to trust because you haven't done anything. This sort of becomes part of the community, right? Um, to get the light, the son of Raven has to become a part of the community in some way. These are all, by the way, things that Atleo then says, so if you've read it, you probably knew that already. Right? Uh, but, but, the, but the idea is that, um, that as the boy, he, he, he joins the community. And yes, he can be obnoxious, but it's because they care about him that, that he wins, right? They get to take advantage of, he gets to take advantage of them. What about the day box? What is this? What's in it? Light. Light. Fire. Fire. Which is it? 
but then but then the son of deer has a flaming tail, right? It's both. It's both. Well, what does that mean? It's both fire and light. Light in what sense? I think it's really interesting because this is another idea of Western science and Native science being having the same answers because we know that the sun, because it's the sun, the sun is on fire and it's a giant gas ball. And so that it burns. Mm -hmm. So the sun burns and we can create fire from the burning. Mm -hmm. And, and so there's a connection between light in the sense of the sun and light in the sense of fire. Are there any other operative notions of light that might be playing a role here? It could also be knowledge, but... Um... In fact, what Leo says in the video is that the light is actually principles of, you know, constitutionality by the thing he means by it, not like the Constitution of the United States or something. So it's ideas as well as light and, and fire, right? Um, which is an interesting thought because it's not just, I've stolen you know, a Bic lighter from that mm -hmm. side or something or flint and so on. But I've stole the things that make a community possible, right? So light and fire and ideas about organizing communities. Um, he doesn't actually say the constitutional thing in the book, but he does in the video. I was going to say that kind of tracks with the idea of them being able to transform, is if they lack mm -hmm. these principles or these mm -hmm. constitutions, then mm -hmm. they are more susceptible to mm -hmm. change, whereas yes. this other community is, right. is, has less change to it. Right, so the community that's in darkness doesn't have many options until they get the light. But apparently the community from which the light is stolen has been taking advantage of these principles, right? And um, it's not clear to me what happens when the light box is stolen in its entirety. Perhaps they, they can recreate all of that stuff. But the people in darkness apparently were sort of not really governed, didn't really have access to the things that come with fire, uh, had no ability to see widely. But once granted all those things, they can start to flourish. Rended. Hmm? Rended. Rended. Well, rend, that's interesting. What's Rend's role in this? Rend is on the side of the people in darkness, right? Because he talks to, to Raven. And he's described as a wise bird. Anyone know what a Rend looks like? Pretty small. Songbird. Yeah, just songbird about yay. Um, but they're very wise. Why would, why would that be? You know something about Rend? Like they're a small songbird. They're a small songbird. Right? <laughs> I, I don't know what their lifestyle is. <laughs> They've been hanging out at the big house, soaking up the light on the side. <laughs> yeah, that's it, right. And they can fly across water, so that helps. <laughs> um, so what is Ren's role here? Ren obviously has a clue. It's sort of like a behind-the-scenes sort of, you know, I have wisdom if you want it. And if you ask me to do it, right. or if something goes wrong, I might offer a suggestion. But uh, in in all, for the most part, we're following kind of Rachel. Right, and, and and frankly, Rachel's right. Uh, the bird represents the ability to sort of get around, see things from different angles, and so on. And so it wouldn't be a big surprise that the the bird has something to say if you ask, right? Um, and helps out the uh, poor son of Raven who just is always 
on the brink of doing something dumb. Yeah. So there's actually an interesting story about rents that come from European tradition. Okay. Which is there was a um, there was like a contest of which bird could fly the highest, and the wren was the one that won it. And oh. So the old name for wren was basically tamely. Oh, and interesting. The wren yeah. beat the eagle in that competition. Uh-huh. Must have something to do with wren's abilities then. Wrens also live in wren houses, which are collective houses, like more than one. They don't live by themselves. They live in groups. So maybe that's a something too. Um, what 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 the wren did to win was hiding in the feathers of the uh, eagle. Oh, and then so, lodged from there. Yeah. Oh, like a so space shot as high as it can go, and then <laughs> the wren just like very smart takes a couple more. And there's waters. a paper out there about how NASA got the space shuttle from the wren. Just just say it. You can write that down. You can say it was my idea. Okay. <laughs> Copyright. <laughs> Not it. You? Um, so one thing that, I don't know if it's just a common sense in like the media stories, but I like how they, um, the wise character is essentially a completely intelligent character um, in that they they work with um, the people and like in terms of like Ren is working with the son of Raven's egotism, as opposed to like just telling the son of Raven to stop being so egotistical. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, uh, and probably the only way it would have gotten done, right? Because you can't just tell Ran- Raven to not do something. But I feel like that's an element that you see less of in a lot of like. Good. Um, I like that. Uh, let me ask one other question. No one said anything about son of deer, and I think the deer needs to get some attention. You know how deer used to have really long tails? They're like horse tails, practically. And then this happened. And now they have short little tails. You know that, right? That's where that comes from. But what else about Son of Deer? It's fast. Fast? Jump? High? Apparently quite a dancer. Yeah? can be tireless and effortless. Tireless and effortless, so a kind of model of certain virtues. Um, why does Son of Deer have to fail here? Why can't Son of Deer succeed? Because he's not raving. Because he's not raving, exactly. <laughs> this is a raven story, and Son of Deer will not be winning. <laughs> That's surely part of it, right? And it includes a, a, what um, some have called just so tails, right? So why does the deer have a short tail? Because of this, right? Um, so it's it's a part of that sort of explaining nature and giving a role to deer, but of course it is a raven story. So, yeah, I don't know if this is necessarily what you're trying to get at, but one of the things that he says is that um, what Son of Raven proves is that you have to be a part of the community to tap into like resources or knowledge. Right. That right. Deer is an outsider. Deer is, and and deer, deer may be a great dancer, but deer is not from here. Right? Mm-hmm. And it takes Raven becoming from there to be able to get access to the to the pay box. Mm-hmm. Right. It's interesting that it doesn't say at all what happened to Deer, even if he was like captured or not. Because the fire went out, then we don't know what happened. Did he do Very it? fast. I don't know. <laughs> there's so many. <laughs> there's so many. <laughs> but still, is he still running? Still running. Yes, that's right. And still has no full tail because oh, of the wow. fire. Um, but but it's interesting in the story. Deer drops out, right? Um, lesson learned, I guess, right? So whatever deer was about completed the arc of the story and then doesn't come back. Um, I thought it was interesting how although son of deer was the one 
Yes, just put them on notice, right? Why are you doing this? I think part of the story that was really important for me is that in our communities, we live by our protocols, and when protocols are breached and you dishonor your community, you dishonor your people, like that's what you did. And so him not being present anymore, often like breaking protocols mm-hmm. is such a nature and healing things with the deep management. And so mm-hmm. the idea that fear is not there was probably Interesting and a good observation, and of course for for Atleo, the notion of protocol is fundamental. I mean, he talks about it quite in depth in the story. Right, (laughs) right. Uh, All right. Um, What we're going to do now is take a break because everyone's excited about that, and we're going to come back. We're going to do one more story. Sure. Um, It is uh, the story about the son of mucus. So just come to terms with the name. And then when we come back, we're going to, and, and actually in the video, Atleo's like, all right, this is the name, so just get over it. <laughs> so anyway, so take five, and then we'll we'll come back to Anthony. Mm-hmm. We're going to go down the stand up like five minutes. You get that? You get that? Some There's some harder words in here. Uh, so this is uh, this is a story about son of mucus already mentioned and uh, pitch woman who is um, a scary cannibal like being whose head is full of pitch. You know what pitch is? No. Anyone want to explain? Because I can. Pitch. Pitch in a tree. Think trees. It's the. Sap, tar, goo stuff. You know, when you when you cut the branch off of, of Douglas fir, it goops out. It's tree blood. And pitch woman is her head is filled with pitch. Because her heart is not on location. But we'll get back to that. <laughs> I am sitting down because I'm tired of sitting at the desk. So just, so just uh, when it's your turn to read or your prep, it's just right up. Okay. So we're on page 23 of the Sawak Green Book. And um, uh, I'll start. One day, while the people were living in Ahus, Ahus is uh, actually also um, Atleo's town, right? Okay. The chief's daughter went out to play on the beach with the rest of the children. They had all been warned about Almakus, the giant, ugly giant woman who stole children. Um, they say she lived high up in the mountains where she took all the abducted children. But children have no time to worry while at play. Every moment of play is filled with the keen enjoyment of life. It would be during such moments of play that Almakus, uh, with a gigantic basket on her back, would come down the mountain chewing a great wad of gum pitch. Alfmakus was very large, very strong, and very ugly. She was also, she was so large and so ugly that when the children saw her, the tiniest ones would freeze in terror. Emanations from the powerful evil presence can be felt by spiritually sensitive little hearts, 
which are then gripped with terror. I'm already scared. It was such a day while the chief scholars lay on the beach that all snuffies appeared and began to scoop up the terror-stricken children with their large hands and throw them screaming into the basket. It was after this particular raid that one child, who was captured by all snuffies, managed to escape and find her way back home. She went to the chief and told him that all snuffies had taken all the children from the great house in the mountains. There she had put down over all the children's eyes so that they could no longer see. Now, people who murdered children in some cases, they wanted desperately to get their children back, but they were afraid of this ugly giant. They were afraid of her power and her strength. What were they to do? Who was able to rescue their beloved children? Who could restore families and groups of friends? But no one in all the land was found who could rescue them. So it was the chief's wife grieving, uh, grieving exceedingly for her daughter. She caught her hair as was the custom that morning. She wept and wailed until her nose ran with mucus. She wiped her nose and flung the mucus away. She noticed that no matter how she flung her mucus, it would land, as though guided, into one specific mussel shell. She continued her grieving, but soon noticed that the mussel shell had begun to move. A modern woman would no doubt be startled, incredulous, and suspicious of anything so unnatural. Fortunately, she was Hakun, the wife of the chief. And as her tears continued to flow, her heart filled with wonder at the tiny feet sticking out of the muscle shell. She dried her tears and went for a closer look. Today it would be called a miracle, but in those days it was not an unusual phenomenon. People were always transforming into salmon or leaves and other such beings. The mucus of the chief's wife had transformed into a baby. She took the baby to her husband and explained how it had been born. Her husband picked up the children and took them to her uncle, who was more wise in the terrorist days. The baby cried with pain, cried with its tongue curled in an ordinary way. No, the baby grew rapidly, became a boy far taller than ordinary babies did. All of the people were amazed, especially since they knew the chief's wife was not pregnant. Yet they marveled at the manner of birth, and accordingly, as the custom nose child, they conceived the son of Mucus. As a boy, King Kenyet uh, was wise beyond his years. He was knowledgeable about all things and was skillful with his hands. Still, the chief's wife continued to grieve for her stolen daughter. Occasionally, King Kenyet would ask what she was sad about. Then, one day, it seemed right for the chief's wife to tell King Kenyet that her daughter had been stolen by Altamakuya. About this time, Altamakuru's Al came again to steal children. King Kenyet heard of the raid and was determined to do something about it. Of all the people, King Kenyet alone did not fear this giant enemy. So before setting out to rescue the children, King Kenyet informed the people that they should post a lookout for the children. After they found the trail of the giant animals and followed it far into after some time, he came to the great house in the mountains. Here the three chiefs peered inside, and there he saw many children lying against uh. the wall. The child had gained some wisdom with that of people sitting at the table. They had gone over their eyes and most had become blind. As King Kenyet pondered how to rescue the children, he noticed that the giant warrior had leaped for house, going from the spring, off to go to his home. 
then he knew what to do. As the woman was ready to go again with the springer, Antonia ran to the well and climbed into an altar that was upon it. He took a position where the reflection of his face could be seen in the water. As the woman was dipping her water bucket into the springing well, she noticed the reflection of the water. last paragraph. As they approached the village, the people's lookout saw the children. As news of the children's arrival spread, the village became a bustle of great activity and excitement. Mothers and fathers choked back their tears of joy and relief as they were reunited with their children. The chief ordered a great feast. The people gathered together and ate heartily, sang for joy, and danced in thanksgiving. There they recognized Ingtonit's achievement. Say again? Close enough. 
So uh, what's uh, the theory here? There's lots of stuff going on, right? So just to be clear. So there's probably not just one answer to that, but sort of what do you, what do you see as the first takeaway from the story? That, like, basically there's a hero that's manifested in this situation. Where I guess the universe is helped will into manifest, as I think the word is like a way forward or a, a solution. So, so where does Son of Mucus come from again? I mean, the grieving of Right. So, so it's, it's important to note that the universe's intervention here is in the form of grief, right? Grief generates the solution, in a sense, right? Um, more than that, because it takes the muscle shell and so forth to, to turn into uh, intimate, but it's the grieving that calls it to, to being, right? Okay. I, I I just thought of it as with with every loss there is opportunity for a new life. Mm -hmm. Yes, which is which is an opportunity, but it's not just that, right? It's also that this new life ends up being the salvation of all these kids, right? So it's and and in the end, none of the kids die, at least that are important, right? You you were going to say something before. <laughs> Sorry. The next thing, like how the sages, like Right, right, and and makes a thing right about the role of grief, right? That um, this this tells us something about it, and and in the end, it actually solves solves the cause of the grief, right? Um, what else do you notice? If you think about this story as sort of laying out. A picture of the world, right, in Ahus. What other things sort of are apparent from the story? When I was young, it's called um, the Icelandic story of Prima, which is a cannibal, ugly ah. scientist. Yes. Which is, yeah, so it's basically the same character. She lives up in the mountains, comes right. down and steals children, but she steals children from the kingdom. Mm -hmm. That's a traditional thing. In, European folklore where you see it as a consequence of actions. Mm -hmm. In this case, the children are not doing anything wrong. It's just because they're children. In a sense, yes, but of course they're not paying attention. They were told to be careful of this creature and they, they weren't. They forgot about the creature when they were playing. So so that's, I mean, that's at least, some, I mean, they're not misbehaving in the sense of, you know, getting away with something, but they're not paying attention. Well, in the Pacific Northwest, we have a lot of other characters similar to Basket Woman. Like, I mean, we have stories here in Oregon of Basket Woman. Mm -hmm. um, but there's other characters, too, other, other like, sick Indians and things like that mm -hmm. that play, play the role of, like, misbehaving and mm -hmm. not following protocols that mm -hmm. you could die from. Sick? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think uh, it's really interesting that Alphamakus uh, like, is represented by kind of like natural things. Like she's filled with pitch. She herself is painted as a very natural force, mm -hmm. which breaks apart family units. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and what the, what about not having her heart in her body? Yeah, I thought that. <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, why is that the case? <laughs> yes. Oh, I just think it's interesting to touch on that as well. The materials by which both of these, like the hero and villain, both play on like uh, Alpha Hoops comes and steals children when they're experiencing like pure joy essentially. 
um, um, takes advantage of that and oh, presents, yeah. presents pure terror as a means to like take them and is made of like a sticky mending substance uh -huh. just the same as the son of mucus is made of a similar mending substance, but has a dichotomous role. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. So was he never really a child then? Don't know. I mean, I know what like you know. That, 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 that seems like how it's presented. Uh, that he's uh, kind of born as not a child, and that's why he's able to confess. Often heroes grow up really fast in these stories because there's, okay. you know. Not that much time. But um, Leo uh, refers to there being a number of Son of Mucus stories. So this is just one of them, apparently. So it's a character who's recurring, and no doubt, you know, sort of, I don't know, I imagine in every one there's a kind of where does it come from part, right? Yeah, I think of, like, the, there's a really interesting push and pull to it, right? Like, the consequence of the children being taken as the solution to that problem, which is born out of the, you know, full terror of that problem. Right. And you get this brilliant child that doesn't mend the wound and fix all of the problems. So, right. Yeah. Right. Yes? Is there something to be said about like the vanity aspect as well? This is what uh, cost the pitch woman her head actually, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we literally really like seeking that. Mm -hmm. It's 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 interesting that uh, pitch woman is ugly, apparently knows it, and son of mucus is beautiful. Right and and then plays on the vanity of of pitch woman, um, that sort of fits interestingly into the push and pull of the joy terror thing as well. Yeah, that's good. Um, yes. If she knows she's ugly. How does she think it's her reflection? Has she she's, never seen her reflection? But well, th this would I mean the presumption is she's never really. I mean she didn't okay. have a mirror around the house, I guess. Uh, this uh, this uh, a mirror thing. Um, happens in other stories in the U.S. Northeast. Uh, indigenous stories also have the looking in the pool and fooling the cannibal. So it's a it, it's a theme that shows up more than once. Interestingly, I think in embodying evil, vanity is an aspect of that. Right. Embodying negative right. Good. attributes, why not have vanity just tossed in there? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Good. Um, One thing that seems significant, I didn't notice it the first read through, but um, and I don't know what to make of it, but she has two names. Yes. There's like a name that the like chamber pot calls. Yes. Yeah. I don't know what that means, but it seems like an interesting um, detail. Yes, and it's, in, and it's included in, in the published version, which makes it something that maybe we should be able to figure out. I suspect the, his community knows perfectly well why there are two names. But, mm -hmm. um, he doesn't explain it, or in the video. Well, I mean, in different communities, names have different mm -hmm. meaning, and there might be a public-facing name versus a private name for the family, and also, like, the name that the people call her, I mean, could be a name that's created by them, right. you know, rather, right. like, you know, um, like, what are some examples of that in modern day, like, that, like, somebody referring to somebody as... It's, like, it's a derogatory like, name, basically, gotcha. versus their, their actual name. Their name. Yeah. If you want an indigenous example, uh, Apache means enemy and Zuni, yeah. but yeah. they call right. themselves Rohingya. Right. Which is, uh, yeah, which is common. I mean, lots of the received names for for nations are the 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 nasty name applied by enemies, right? Yeah. 
Um, what, one of the things that no one's mentioned, and he doesn't either, is a parallel that's suggested by these Northeast stories. So in the Northeast, there are cannibal stories as well. And they figure in an interesting way at the intersection when, when Europeans arrive. Um, cannibal stories are actually talked about a lot uh, in the context of speaking to indi indigenous people speaking to Europeans. Um, there are recorded cannibal stories that Roger Williams, who's a, a, uh, the founder of Rhode Island, he arrived in 1620 or something, and wrote the first dictionary in English. It's a Narragansett English dictionary, and it includes some cannibal stories. Um, cannibals in that part of the country um, were, um, they, ha they had a, a type. They were big, like the, like the pitch woman, but they were white, like they were frozen and they were ugly, um, not because they were like had features, but because they, um, they were so hungry they ate their faces, so they had like no lips and stuff. This is how they're described, right? So, and they, and they're- They ran into Vikings. Yeah, exactly, and they're, and they're dirty, and they smell really badly. And so the, what Williams takes from this is that Native people thought of the Europeans arriving as in fact cannibals. Um, but what's interesting is that there are two different kinds of cannibal stories. One kind of cannibal story, you like run ASAP. You see a cannibal coming, you get out. But in, there are another category of cannibal stories where you don't, you do the opposite. You actually welcome the cannibal. So there's this story, a pretty common story, different versions of it, where um, an old woman is in her uh, house, her, her um, sort of conical wigwam, <coughs> And, and it has a smoke hole at the top, and she's cooking, and she looks up, and she sees a cannibal looking down. And so she, she's all by herself, and of course this is scary, but she shouts out, Grandfather, great to see you. Why don't you come in and have something to eat? And the cannibal shrinks down and walks in the door and sits down. And she feeds the cannibal. Well, everyone knows that if you feed a cannibal ordinary food, it will convert them into not cannibal. And so she, in effect, wins the encounter by, by welcome as opposed to fleeing or killing. And so, so it, it also provides an interesting explanation for some of the receptions Europeans got because sometimes they were actually welcomed when they arrived. And Europeans think it's because they were the native people were just astonished by the, the greatness of those English people. Um, but in fact, what they were doing was what they were doing cannibal story B, they saw these cannibals and said, if we welcome them, maybe they will stop being cannibals. <laughs> and it didn't work in every case, but sometimes actually it did. Um, the term that's used in Narragansett is one-eggin, which interestingly means welcome and true and good. So good, true, and welcome are all the same root word, which is interesting too. And so these welcome stories involve cannibals and, and as I say, they're told even to Europeans on, in the Northeast. Rachel? So for this story in particular, I don't really see it as a cannibal story because it, that's the woman isn't human, like per se. She's, she's non-human. And so it's not necessarily cannibalism. She that's, eats kids, but it's She eats not, kids, but she's not a cannibal because she's made of pitch. Yeah. Yeah, good. But... She is scary, like a cannibal. Yeah. 
but it was an opportunity for me to tell a cannibal story. I was once invited to my son's like sixth grade class to give a talk, and he said, tell the cannibal story. So, <laughs> so I did. It was fun. <laughs> I mean, also, like during the Enlightenment period, is, is Western scientists, pseudoscientists were writing about indigenous people. They often went to those cannibal mm -hmm. stories to dehumanize us. Mm -hmm. So, like... Yeah. On the other hand, those indigenous people went to those cannibal stories as a way of explaining what was going on. So it depends upon where you're at and which stories are being told. Yeah. But yes. I almost said that that's just a commonality throughout history, like just calling the other cannibals. Like that that's certainly part did, of it. The Aztecs did that to their neighbors. Like yeah. Everyone's done it. It's interesting. European yeah. cannibal stories at the time really only have one option, though, for dealing with a cannibal, and that's to, to kill them. Um, whereas it appears that at least in the Northeast there were alternate methods of dealing, which goes to other stuff. Um, so what else in this story strikes you? The pitch on the eyes of the children. I don't know if we've talked about that. But like, we haven't, but we should. Yeah, yeah, what like, do you think about that? Well, you know, Leo talks about, well, um, uh, about, well, he alludes to the idea of like children being sort of led off and sort of maybe like um, forgetting sort of traditional ways or somehow being blinded by mm -hmm. sort of things that are picked up elsewhere. And my mind immediately, I, obviously this is like a story that applies to a lot of cases, but I immediately like thought of like the experience of boarding schools, right? Mm -hmm. Like um, the way right. that children were taken from communities and sort of... I, I, wondered, I wondered about that resonance too, right? The boarding school sort of parallel to some somebody taking the children away when they sort of least expect it and then denying them access to things. Um, I, I, he, Leo doesn't mention this as a parallel, but, but it seemed to be a potential one. Right. Right. I was just thinking just about um, in this one, mm -hmm. when he's talking about like remembrance ceremonies and like children even early on and it doesn't go too in-depth in the story about necessarily what the children do. Maybe they weren't following the remembrance ceremonies. They weren't doing the dances and things that they were supposed to be doing to remember. And they clearly weren't remembering, yeah. right? I mean, they were just told, yeah. don't go down there and goof around without paying attention. Mm -hmm. And they didn't. Um, what? Oh, it is really interesting to think of like a loss of sight as a loss of worldview, not just simply not mm -hmm. being able to see. Mm -hmm. And any uh, given the other story, right, where the light is actually more than just light, it's also like the principles you guide by and so forth. Being blinded from that means that you're back in the darkness with the people in the darkness, right? Um, okay. So I wanted to make sure I... Oh, um, a couple of things turn up in this chapter after the story. Um, one of them is on page 37. I think it's useful to mark a couple of these. On page 31, uh, Atleo makes a point of saying that there's purpose in life, and that purpose in life, and this, this is my interpretation of it, everyone has a place and a purpose and specific roles. I think, I think he says something to that effect, but just to sort of pull it out, I think... He's saying, look, people in a community have purpose, the purpose that's shared, their own particular purposes, and they have a role in that community, right? And um, 
the the um, the structure of the community is one where evil, sorry, evil, he talks about evil on the same page, is what blinds us to our places and roles. It's an interesting kind of account of evil, right? Evil sometimes in the West is privation, right? You don't have the good stuff. Um, sometimes it's antithetical to the good stuff. But in this case, it's blinding you to your role and place in the community. Um, so that's an, I mean, that's a, for a Western person, that's not usually what's thought of as evil. Um, but it squares with the idea if everyone has a purpose and a place, then evil would be falling out of those places. Why? Because you don't, you're not aware of them. You're blinded to it. It also gives you a way of talking about colonization because it blocks access to traditional roles and so on. Um, but it also says something about individuals who decide that they're going to bag it in the community. They're going to leave. When they do, obviously, they're now no longer in their place, and that's bad. Sage, I'm sorry, I kept talking there. Oh. <laughs> no, I don't, go, please. <laughs> Not my show, our show. Isn't that what I'm supposed to say? Go ahead. <laughs> well, at the top of page 30, he uh, talks about really explicitly kind of like the purpose of the story is to emphasize really the universe is all about relationality. Mm -hmm. Essentially, the primary purpose of life, it says right here, is to create, maintain, and uphold relationships. Right. Which I think the story emphasizes mm -hmm. in an implicit way. He also adds on that page the notion of polarity, which I think we're going to talk about a lot more in that book because it's really important. But he's got this idea that the way to understand the universe is as um, poles, like uh, magnetic poles, like things in opposition, which have to be balanced, right? And he calls uh, the role... Hmm? Sorry? Balance and harmony. Balance and harmony. But then he, how do you get that? He calls it polarity management, right? So polarity management is not just everything's always in balance. This is the key thing. Sometimes it falls apart. Sometimes it's going great. And your job is to manage the times, right? Good to bad. And this story is an instance of polarity management. It sort of goes with the point you were making, right? Um, you know, the grief and the joy, the, you know, the terror. And so all of that um, is working out across the course of the story as polarity management, right? The, the worst possible thing, the kidnapping of the kids, their recovery, the, the mediator in this case, son of mucus, who's able to, you know, sort of bring the kids back, emerges out of grief, brings joy, you know, and so on. Polarity management. And that is very much not part of the usual Western notion of things. Uh, and it's also arguably not part of Deloria's notion of ontology. He is far less clear about uh, this idea that there are really bad things and really good things and they have to be managed constantly. This shows up a lot in, in Milchanu's view, but much less so in Deloria's view. So it's a point maybe of contrast, I don't know. Or it could be a point of emphasis where Deloria's not as interested in that because he's got other questions. Right? Um, let's see what else is in I think Deloria, yeah, I think Deloria does talk about it a little bit when he's talking about place and the what the directional yes. place. Yes. Um, and I don't think he goes into it, but in Lakota culture, like the idea that not only is it directional, but it's like a balancing between the four directions and that in order to um, be whole on 
to have that holistic approach. You have to have balance between those things. And, but it's not just a dichotomous right. balance, but it's multiple right. balances. It, and balance is definitely, harmony is definitely central to Deloria's view. But the question is, so what, what is the ontology that's being balanced? And, and uh, Leo's pretty clear about that, yeah. right? There, there, there are these poles. There's the negative, the positive, and they need to be balanced. And they, they are balanced in the sense of, like, on a, on a balance where they're kept level. The balance is over time, and it's going like this, right? Because it's polarity management, not complete balance. Um, we'll have to come back to that uh, when, we, when we talk on Wednesday. Um, anything else from these two chapters that you want to... Oh, yes, thank you for bringing that up. I completely forgot. What the heck is a chamber pot doing here? It's like a ring alarm or something. Uh, but, but a terrible one. It doesn't even realize he's there until he's busy killing her. It's not terribly sophisticated. Exactly. He's already fired the arrow, and the chamber pot is going off. Your guts will tell you. <laughs> but I do want to pause and say why the, cha the chamber pot. Uh, I mean, thoughts? I just love that it's still yelling on the it's, ground outside. Just like, <laughs> alarm, alarm, alarm. Yeah, I don't have an answer for the chamber pot. Uh, and he doesn't say anything about it in the in the video. Like, and here's the mystery of the chamber pot. Yes, but I also was questioning, like, why the heart was, like, separated and, like, why he stabbed it. Like, I was kind of expecting him to, like, not like the actual heart. Yeah, interesting. It, um, I, yes. I would think of it as just like a funny component because stories, yes, they all have the chamber theory, But sometimes you just gotta laugh, like a you know. And sometimes there's just ridiculous parts of stories that just are meant to make people mm -hmm. stay engaged and laugh. And the se the separation of the heart and the pitch woman. Less funny, but 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 why is that? It, because the, you can't kill her. She goes out to you know gather up children, and somebody and, attacks her. They yeah, can't so kill you, her. Yeah, because she's pitch. Yeah. So no problem. Her heart's back home. Mm -hmm. Sage, I think it could just be an extension of you know really illustrating how unfeeling she is. That mm -hmm. her heart is external to herself and her literal being. Yeah. So so she is so cruel. That she doesn't have a heart in her body. Leaves it at home with the chamber. That's good. Pot. I like that. Yeah, it leaves it at home. I thought it was interesting that he did stab her, that he shot her with an arrow. It's uh, like, because it seems like it would be more convenient to just go for the stab and just like get it over with. Like, why do you need to keep the distance away when the heart is not autonomous to like. She's giant. She probably put it on a, whole, on a high shelf. It's really high. Just couldn't reach. Yeah. Okay. He's, he's a little bigger. The arrow's much better for he's that. He's a little sub-mucus. She's a giant. <laughs> he's as big as a muscle shell. Come on. <laughs> so, so, uh, so the chamber pot. What, what other thought of the chamber pot? Uh, technology? Because the chamber pot, that, you know, that, those don't fall off the trees. They're, they're made, right? And so maybe it's it is like technology or something in the room that's useless. 
for saving you? I don't know. My first impression of the plot was like, this is probably the only thing that she has any real relationship with. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm liking that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was sort of like concerned about all of this, but like uh, Son of Mucus has sort of like, you know, he talks about how there's, there's not like a debate over good and evil. Uh -huh. So Son of Mucus is like, no, I, I'm killing and taking, and this pot who's concerned, I do not give a damn about. Uh, it's just annoying. So I don't know. I thought that was my thought. That's good. I, I, I like that. Yeah. And and the fact that it is like the only thing with a positive relationship <coughs> yeah. could be the case. Yeah. I will a chapter where he's trying to explain to the, ch to the chamber pot that he's, he's not coming back. <laughs> she's not coming back. <laughs> chamber pot's still out there sobbing. <laughs> All right, I think uh, on that note, we've, we've learned a lot today, have we not? Um, so on uh, Wednesday, we're going to do the, the second read, Principles of Sawak. Uh, Joe will help us out by leading this discussion. There's a lot going on in that chapter, so please, uh, that book. So I ask you to read the whole thing because it's really good, but I understand that you're probably making triage notes to yourself now. Uh, each chapter has a key idea, right? Figure out what that idea is, even if you don't have to word each and every word in the chapter, because those ideas are really important to get the picture that Atleo is trying to present. Okay? Yeah. See you Wednesday. With all the native people who just wander into Eugene. <laughs>